Welcome to a new series of Read All About It, the show that gives you ideas about books you might enjoy. I'm Nuri Vitacci, and I have a new co-host for this series. I'm Marshall Moore, and every week each of us are going to tell you about a book that we've enjoyed recently. And we'll also discuss a classic piece of literature that's well worth reading or rereading. Today, I've brought along a bit of populist literature. I'm usually a Booker Prize type guy, but uh, well, I've gone for the I mean, it's holiday time. So this is a nice bit of uh, holiday reading. You might want to take this with you on a trip uh, over Chinese New Year. The book is The Girl on the Train by Paula Hawkins. Uh, some of you will have read it already, but uh, uh, many of you won't. It was a bestseller starting in 2015, still a bestseller in 2016 uh, when a book appeared. Uh, when, sorry, when a movie appeared. Uh, the book is um, is a thriller, and uh, it's, uh, the basic plot is that there's a girl who takes a train every day, and she looks out of the train window, and she sees interesting things happening, uh, just passing by, by uh, houses and people, and slowly she puts clues together, and she realizes something horrendous has happened. Uh, it's a it's a fun story. I don't want to put any spoilers into this uh, into this review, but uh, have you read it, Marshall? No, I have not read it. I attempted to watch the movie recently, and I'll have to admit it didn't really hold my interest. So tell us why the book is so amazing. Right. Yeah, the movie did not get great reviews. Um, but the book is, uh, is, a, is a page turner. And I think the, the thing that's uh, great about it is the main character. Uh, Rachel is uh, your ultimate unreliable narrator. Um, she's a 32-year-old alcoholic who's lost her job, and she goes to work every day on the train, although she doesn't have any work. She's pretending to go to work, but she's an unreliable narrator. That's a technical term that we authors use, and it really means that um, the person telling the story in the first person is someone you can't quite trust. You don't know uh, quite uh, how much truth uh, she's telling. In this case, Rachel is an honest person, but she's an alcoholic and she has blackouts. And early on in the book, this is not a spoiler, uh, she wakes up bruised and damaged with no memory of what she did the previous night. Now, this is kind of interesting from a, a thriller detective mystery story point of view, because normally you have your, your good guy and you have your evil perpetrator of uh, ghastly acts. But here, we don't actually know whether uh, Rachel is the good guy looking for the baddie or whether she's the baddie. Because during that blacked out period, uh, what happened? She wakes up with bruises. So something scary and awful did happen, but we don't know uh, what it is. Unreliable narrators are always fun, don't you think? I think so. But I think the trick for an author, and I say this as someone who's written quite a few unreliable narrators, how do you make the reader care and connect with them? And can she do that in this book? It's a, it's a tricky one. And it's also might be the reason why the movie didn't work. Because unreliable narrators, you can do on the page quite easily because um, you're writing uh, a first person account. And the uh, so the, the story goes through the filter of the personality of the uh, of the person telling the story. But when you're watching a movie, you're being presented with actual objects and things happening. 
And uh, so you assume that what you're seeing is what happens. So, of course, that unreliable narrator thing doesn't work. And uh, the king of unreliable narrators is uh, is uh, Kazuo Ishiguro, and uh, the remains of the day sort of blasted onto the scene, made him famous as the the, the really ultimate unreliable narrator story. And I notice uh, uh, an Ishiguro story in front of you, so uh, we'll hear about that, I think, uh, in a few minutes. Um, but one more thing I want to say about uh, about Paula Hawkins' book. We're talking about The Girl on the Train, a uh, best-selling book by Paula Hawkins. Um this, the story is not for the the literary reader. There's going to be the, your literary reader is going to be annoyed by a lot of things in it, but it's the perfect holiday book. It's the book you take on the airplane. It's the book you read uh, sitting by the pool. If you enjoyed, if you can cope with things like Harry Potter or the Da Vinci Code uh, or just general mysteries, Agatha Christie, Ruth Rendell, uh, that sort of mystery book, uh, then you'll probably love this one. So what would you say about the quality of the writing? Because from what you're saying, it reminds me of Gone Girl, which I thought was actually very well written and was conceptually quite similar to this. So quality of the writing, not so much? Yeah, good question. Uh, Gone Girl was uh, was a book, um, I think 2014, um, which was also a thriller, also unreliable narrator. Um, it was a it was a long, complex book with uh, with two narrators. Uh, and um, that was written by by an author who is uh, very much more experienced. Uh, it's uh, the the quality of the writing was very high. That's a, it was almost a literary detective story, um, quite different from this one. Uh, Paula Hawkins, she was I think a journalist on the on one of the UK papers, and uh, I believe this is her first book or certainly her first uh, breakthrough book. So um, the quality of the writing, it's a it's a it's a good thriller. It's uh, not literary. By any means, uh, I look out for. I, I love detective stories, so I always look out for literary uh, uh, detective writers. My favourite is Adrian McGinty. Have you ever read him? Not somebody I've read yet. Oh, wonderful, wonderful! He's so literary that you can enjoy it if you're, you know, if you're reading it straight after a, you know, a Booker Prize novel or something. But he's also fun, and there's, you know, there's your good guy chasing the bad guy down an alley, and uh, all the things you need in a good suspense type thriller. So, yeah, uh, The Girl on the Train by Paula Hawkins, uh, uh, deservedly a bestseller because it's a, a page turner, uh, well worth reading, about an alcoholic girl who tries to solve a mystery but is stymied not by the bad guy but by herself because of her blackouts and alcoholic uh, uh, periods. One thing I wanted to ask about, I did some homework about the author and I understand that uh, Paula Hawkins, the author, this is her first big breakout book, but she's actually done, I believe it was three others kind of i i'm almost reluctant to use the term chick lit but much lighter romancy light comedy kinds of things and so this is a real shift for her and i wonder given her switch from again feelings of guilt about calling it chick lit because that that might be a term we're not supposed to use anymore but Who's going to enjoy this book? Is there a gender thing going on in it? That's a, well, that's a good question. Uh, I think um, I think you're 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 right to be cagey about that because um, uh, these days are all very politically correct on RDHK. But um, uh, you know, stereotypes are often based on observation, and I can s- say for a fact my wife will read books about relationships, whereas uh, I'll tend to read uh, books about men with guns and fast cars. Uh, sometimes we'll swap, um, but uh, the. This suits everybody because all three of the narrators in uh, The Girl on the Train are women. 
Um, one is a, a, a down and out woman who's, who's lost a job, the main narrator. Um, the second one is, uh, is Miss Happy Perfect, who's uh, netted the perfect husband and has the perfect life. And the third one is the mystery character. Um, what role is she? Good guy, bad guy. So we've got these women narrators uh, talking whose interests are, are are babies and and relationships but we also have the uh the thrill aspect the 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 mystery murder the police uh the uh, the, the search for clues so all those standard detective uh, type elements uh interestingly you know they say the great thriller writers the great detective story writers have nearly all been women so um the stereotypes don't really work in the in the in the crime fiction uh, area. It's quite it's quite fascinating how how violent women writers are, really, isn't it? And that's such a brilliant thing. <laughs> yes. How would you say that the the writing avoids or rests on genre stereotypes or character stereotypes? Does the does the plot really rest on that, or is it more complex and layered than that? It, well, it's um, you know one of the problems that all detective story writers have is that you know we have a character who keeps getting into scrapes, and when when you've written one detective story, you can kind of get away with it because you can imagine a person uh, getting involved with a with a murder. Uh, it's when you've done a series, you know, like uh, I've written five in a row, and uh, you know the reader is thinking, okay, this is the fifth time he's got involved in a murder. What's going on? And that's a problem that happens with people writing series or that go on for many seasons on TV, you know, the character keeps like Father Brown, for example, that's been going on forever. And uh, you keep thinking, why is this country vicar got involved in his, you know, 43rd murder? How realistic is this? For the Paula Hawkins book, we're talking about the girl on the train. You know, it's her first uh, thriller. So we, we don't really have that genre problem there. So this week, I've brought Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro. And this is such an interesting book. And I'll start by kind of riffing on what you said about that genre problem. And if there was ever a book that had a genre problem, this was probably it. Because at the time of its publication, and this isn't the newest book, it was published in 2005. And um there was a lot of not really controversy, but a lot of critics couldn't quite decide what it was. Was it science fiction? Was it horror? Was it a literary novel? Was it social commentary? And having read it, I, I still can't quite make up my mind because it's a book that really spans all of that and then seems to take it even farther. Uh, the basic idea is there's only so much I can say because there's – it's the sort of thing that rests on a really large conceptual premise. And if I blurt it out, then there's really no reason for everybody to read the book. But it concerns three teenagers, and it takes place over a fairly long period of time. Uh, they're in this kind of mysterious British boarding school that's nothing like Hogwarts. Um, it's called Hailsham, though, so it does start with H and have two syllables. Um there's a really nasty secret behind this place and who they are and what they're doing there. And it comes to you very slowly. This isn't a book that gives away its secret on the first page. You read and you kind of know something's going on and you know it's probably quite dark and awful. But Ishiguro is really a master of giving you just a glimpse of the secret 
And as you read, if you're paying attention to the details, you start putting the picture together that there's really something quite badly wrong with this place. Uh, the, the children there um, have no contact at all with the outside world. But this isn't some kind of reform school. You don't, we don't learn that they're there because they're criminals or something like that. Um, they don't seem to be there because of a health condition. So what's going on? Why are they in isolation? And as you read, you know, it's all very focused on the mundane details of their lives. This is a book about uh, centers on on three children, but it's definitely not a children's book. It's definitely not a children's book. It's really dark, Um, but it's gentle in its darkness. It's it's almost like it's setting you up to be absolutely gutted once you find out what the premise of the book is and who they are and why they're there. But it's all done so carefully. His books are his books are very varied, aren't they? Because um, you know you've got the buried giant, which is like a, a fable. You've got uh, uh, you've got the one I uh, mentioned earlier. The, the remains of the day is a, a book which is very much uh, an, an exercise in unreliable narration. But this one, you say, um, starts off as a school story and then veers into horror. It's very intriguing. What can you well, say about? I'm this? almost reluctant to say it's just horror because it was framed as that by some critics. And having done a PhD that had a lot of research into horror, I definitely think that the dynamics of the book go in that direction. But there's a sort of science fiction-y component to it as well. But it's it again, it's all off the page. It's not right there in front of you. You know, they're not monsters. There aren't test tubes and scary machines. It's all backgrounded until almost the very end. Um, and so you're reading it and you're gradually kind of eliminating the possibilities. And as you do that, then it becomes more horrific because you do figure out that you've already ruled out, like I said, the crime aspect they're not there because they're ill. They're not there because they're insane. They're there for a reason. They're being kept away from society. There are all these strange rules about what they're allowed to do and not allowed to do. And as you eliminate everything, you begin to really worry about these young people. What's going to happen to them? Why are they there? That's kind of horrific, even though it's not exactly horror in the Stephen King sense. Let me ask you something that uh, always comes to mind when uh, when we're talking about authors who are always on these these prize lists. Is it is it fun? We know it's clever because it's got the name Ishiguro on it. It's very clever, that's for sure. Uh, like Ian McEwan is very clever, but is it a good read? Is it enjoyable? You know, that's an interesting question, and I did ask myself that at a couple of points while I was reading it. Um, I'll be honest; there were a couple of points in the first maybe third to a half of the book where I found myself skimming a little bit. But then there would be just enough of a payoff that I didn't want to give up on it because I knew that this was building towards something. And the quality of the writing itself is just lovely. He's an exquisite writer. So I was willing to kind of speed read just a little bit because there's so much focus on the mundane you know, just these kids being kids and having crushes on each other and having cliques and having disputes with their teachers. And after a while, I was like, oh, come on, Ishiguro, get on with it. 
Mm-hmm. Ishiguro is, uh, uh, as you say, exquisite writer. He he um he he really is the master of layers, isn't he? Because there's always a top layer where you think, okay, this is kind of a mundane story, and then I, I almost find I have to read all his books twice because you you read the mundane layer first, and you think, okay, it's a kind of dull book about something not very interesting, and then you read the it again, you think, wow, all these clues are hidden in there, right? And uh, and they, they they eventually come out. Right. And that's that's very much the experience with this. I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's dull because it's not because the sense of narrative tension, he's very good at subtly ramping that up. So while you're reading, you worry about these kids because there is something awful going on. Like I've said, I'm trying so hard not to blurt out what it is. But then um, there is the payoff because, you know, once you have really gotten to know them. And I think that's actually his purpose. You've gotten to know them. You've gotten to care about them. You worry about them. And then you get more information. And then suddenly you understand what they are, why they're there, and what's going to happen to them at the end. And I think probably the most horrific bit about that is almost not what's going to happen, but their reaction to it. And that's the part that just absolutely breaks your heart or breaks your head or breaks some important body part. And, yeah, so the payoff is absolutely there. And I wouldn't have brought it on and talked about it as my first book for this series otherwise. This is Never Let Me Go by Kajua Ishiguro. Um, so, yeah, definitely recommend it. It's a, he's a, he's a wonderful writer. We're, we're talking about a, uh, Ishiguro is a, is a British writer, really. He's, he's, he, although he sounds his name, you think Japanese, but, um, he, he's really the ultimate British voice, isn't he? That very understated thing. Right. He, he really became famous with, uh, Remains of the Day, um, which seemed to be the diary of a very boring butler looking for a staff member who he thought he should rehire. And the whole book is, uh, again, multi-layered because uh, it looks like a, a very dull treatise. But you read it the second time and there's all these uh, these layers in it. Now, um, that was made into a movie. Difficult to make that into a movie. What about this? Could this be a it, successful? It actually is. I was going to just – one more thing about The Remains of the Day. I've read that and I had pretty much the same reaction. I think so much of that story really rests on the roles of the characters in it and what they are and what they're not allowed to do because of who they are. And so that's actually where it's very similar to Never Let Me Go uh, because these children have very, very specific roles as does everyone else in the story. And so he's he's doing something very similar here but putting quite a different spin on it. As to the movie question, it has been made into a major film. I haven't seen it yet. Um, it's one of those where I re- it's just on the list. I really want to. I haven't gotten around to watching it yet, but I am really curious to see how it's handled. Actually, as as, as authors of, of, of physical books, uh, I must say the uh, unreliable narrator is something that we do generally better than the movie makers. I would tend to think so because I, one, the example that always comes to mind for unreliable narration is the sixth sense. And for, you know, for me, well, you know, I saw that I was quite young when it came out. So of course I had no idea what was going on until the very end, but I know a lot of other people who saw through it immediately. Um, and so that type of unreliable narration in filmmaking, I, I agree. It can be quite hard to pull off. Yeah. Uh, the one that really struck me, and I can't remember the name of it. Was it Cook's Tour or something? Uh, it was a recipe book. <clears throat> and uh, uh, you read it as a, as a cook 
visiting different parts of France and talking about the recipes at, at each uh, location and how, how what he cooks. And he even gives lists of ingredients. And the whole cookbook is a trick. It's actually a murder mystery. And he's doing uh, all the recipes are actually poisonous. And uh, he's killing one by one. He's a serial killer. But that was such a clever book. Okay, so just to recap, this has been Never Let Me Go by Kajua Ishiguro, big British bestseller from 2005, and you should read it. And we usually end the show by looking at a classic, which is uh, worth rereading, or if you haven't read it, Naughty Naughty, uh, to read for the first time. And uh, today we've chosen Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Did you like it? Marshall? I really like this book. And it's. I was really happy to have a chance to revisit it, actually, because... It, it, there's so much in it that well, there's so much in it that's become relevant again today, which is horrifying. But it's a good read. It's a clunky read in places. Um, there are definitely bits of it that are on the wooden side, but it's just such an interesting idea. Yes, Brave New World was written in the 1930s by British writer uh, Aldous Huxley, and it's uh, it was really the first major dystopian uh, novel. And um, he wrote it really in reaction to H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells more or less invented science fiction, I think, he and Jules Verne. Um, and H.G. Uh, Wells is writing all these utopian uh, science fiction stories about uh, how wonderful it will be in the future. And uh, Aldous actually got quite annoyed and decided to do a spoof of an H.G. Wells utopian a novel by writing a, a story about how awful it's going to be in the future. So he wrote a story about a, a guy called Bernard Marx who works in a human hatchery uh, creating uh, new human beings. And um, it's quite an involved story, a lot of characters, but eventually he meets a savage. Savage being uh, a person who's not brought up in the system. He's brought up outside the system. So it's really about how... Um, somebody within the system deals with someone outside the system. And so, of course, it becomes uh, about about the essence of humanity, really. That's a good way of putting it, because it's it's the the story really rests on the idea of mass production applied to cloning, which what could possibly be worse? And then the system by which this is done, people are put into different categories and the the first few chapters of the book are almost like an instruction manual how these clones are created and then how they're stratified basically how the developing fetuses or even before they're at that stage are interfered with if you will by subjected to like heat and radiation and chemicals and what have you to condition them or to uh, distort their intellectual capabilities um, so that there would be very evenly controlled, very centrally controlled classes of society. I mean, it's called a caste system. And so the worst thing about it, from my standpoint, was just how shallow everyone was. It's uh, and also like your use of the word clunky. Uh, it is quite. It could, it, it, from our from our point of view today, it does come across as a very clunky book. The uh, I mean, look at the names of the characters. So the main character is as Bernard, as in George Bernard Shaw, and his surname is Marx, as in Karl Marx. And then the the, the main female character is called Lenina, as in Lenin. 
uh, feminized. And then you've got a character called Engels. Of course, Engels was Marx's great uh, partner in the rise of communism. You've got a character called Trotsky and so on. And in fact, the, the book is to some extent just a sort of word game almost. Uh, you can get a list of all the characters in the book and actually, you know, find, OK, the first name comes from him, the surname comes from her and so on and just work out uh, what he's saying. It's a word game, but at the same time, it's actually a good read. It's a good, exciting science fiction story. And um, ultimately, it's actually been more... Uh, influential, I think, than um, than the H.G. Wells utopian novels that it was uh, designed to to parody. I mean, who remembers the utopian novels now? Nobody does. Right. I think the the one that it gets the most comparison to, and the one that inspired me to read it, was 1984. And both of the books are discussed quite a lot these days because of the way political events have been unfolding in different countries, including the one I'm from. And um, you know, 1984 is so grim that it's the kind of book you read and you respect, but you certainly don't enjoy it. And I think the difference with Brave New World is that it is actually kind of fun. It's almost a guilty pleasure in places because, like I said, everything, it just seems so shallow and everybody in the story is kind of devoted to pleasure and having fun and the consequences have already been kind of ironed out of society. So it's all just very sterilized. And at the same time, when you look at it, it's it's kind of repulsive. It's strange, isn't it? And, and, quite, and quite moralistic. Um, uh, Aldous Huxley, as one would expect, uh, comes down hard on the, the system that tries to control humanity. But uh, I think during the writing of it, he visited the States, the United States, and was quite shocked by the the promiscuity. So he also has a has a go at free sex uh, and this sort of thing, which is quite a, quite a dramatic thing to bring up in a book in the nineteen thirties. Um, so he has a he has this character, the director, who is uh, who's very concerned about morality, isn't he? Right. Yeah. And at the same time, the the characters in the book they're all quite blasé about their sexual escapades. And uh, Lenina, I believe, has been monogamously dating one boy for something like four months, and this is all considered a bit scandalous. So the the whole view towards sexuality in the book, having been divorced from consequences and having been divorced from reproduction, and with with people having been conditioned to believe that the family unit is is inherently bad and diseased and cramped and unhealthy and unnatural. Um, this is the whole thing. It, it, it takes off in a lot of different directions. And sometimes you just go, what am I even reading? This is so weird. <laughs> right. But very influential. We're talking about Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, uh, the classic science fiction novel from the 1930s, which has become suddenly very relevant in this day and age where, uh, where um, uh, we, we have uh, a lot of political events happening around the world, which... Uh, uh, is making the world seem a bit more dystopian than perhaps we were we were all hoping it would be, I think. So, to recap, the books we've been talking about today were The Girl on the Train by Paula Hawkins and Never Let Me Go by Kajuo Ishiguro. And, of course, Brave New World was our classic. We'll be back with you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.